So we come to the end of this letter, which is an amazing letter. And to tell you the truth, at first, when I, when I realized where we would end and how we would end, I was honestly bummed a little bit. Because I looked at the end of this letter and I thought, well, that's just really anticlimactic. Nobody's going to want to hear about Paul interacting with these people saying, hey, thanks for sending help for me. No, no one wants that. We, 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 we've been impacted. We've been talked to at the core of our lives and how we practically live out day to day and, and real gospel truths and deep things like justification and propitiation. And if you weren't here, you have no idea what I'm talking about. That's okay. But we, deep things. Right? Now we end on this. Paul saying, hey, thanks for the help. I was a little bit bummed as I began this. But the reality is that Paul closes off this letter in a way that's similar to how he began it. He brings us back, in one sense, to the very core of who he is and what he does in this world. And that is, quite simply, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, just... I'm going to take two minutes here for those of you, and and it's likely on a Christmas week, some of you are family, you're in, you're visiting, you have no idea what I mean by the gospel. The gospel simply means good news. Good news. There's good news, and it's always good news concerning Jesus Christ. That you and I, though born and living out as sinful people, rebellious against the God who created us, we were supposed to live for his glory. We do the exact opposite, live for ourselves, pursue our own things in this world and defame his glory. Those aren't just mistakes that God winks at because he's a, he's a kindly old grandfather at the last day. Those are things that ought to be punished, will be punished, because God isn't just a loving and merciful God. He's also a holy and just God. And so there's something that God did. Instead of sending you to hell, which you and I both deserve, he sends his son in the incarnation. By the way, Merry Christmas. That's what it means. He sends his son in human form to live the life you should have lived and to die the death you should have died. Now he is a sufficient payment for your sin so that you can be forgiven, which means you're not forgiven outside of Christ himself. So you are commanded in Scripture to repent of your sin, to turn from yourself and your self-focus in this world and all of your sinfulness and turn in faith to Jesus Christ, looking to the cross, saying, that is enough for me, that is the payment for me, all my eggs are in his basket, that is the gospel, that's how you're supposed to respond. Amen? Okay, now, Paul's entire life was taken up with that message. He was saved himself in that very way. The Apostle Paul started out just like you and I start out as sinful people in rebellion to God, needing to be redeemed by God, made new in Jesus Christ. And then his life took on an entirely new flavor. He was an apostle to the Gentiles, to the nations. The core of his being was affected by this gospel. And you say, well, well, but in that text you read, Kyle, there was no gospel. No, there was not an explanation of it as I just had. But what you're going to see in this passage is not an explanation of the parts of the gospel. You're going to see a demonstration of the value of the gospel. That Paul cared about it to such a degree, that this church cared about it to such a degree. This is, this is his entire focus in this letter. Oftentimes, people talk about the book of Philippians and say it's the book of joy. It's not the book of joy flat out. It's the book of joy in the gospel. People miss that all the time. Every bit of joy in Philippians is rooted in who Jesus Christ is and what he has done in Paul's life and in all of our lives. This is why he starts out and he says, 
I thank my God in all my remembrance for you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel. That's where this joy flows from for Paul. This is his concern all throughout Philippians, that the gospel is central, that the gospel is our joy. This is why he can say a few verses later in chapter 1, that though I'm in prison, the gospel is advancing. This is why he can say that even in bad motives, as people are out there preaching the glory of Christ, I rejoice because he is being preached. This is why later, at the core of, of, of the, the ethical portion of, of Philippians, that is what you are to do as a Christian, he says this, let your lives be worthy of the gospel. Live your lives in a manner consistent with showing the value of the gospel. Joy in Philippians has to do with this great message. So, I'm going I'm to show you my cards here early on, and I'm going to tell you exactly where I'm going with this. This last portion of Philippians, when Paul is talking to this church, I think that it's meant, it is intended, it is recorded for us to understand the principles behind it and let this be exemplary for us. In other words, what we hear Paul thanking this church for and praising this church for is supposed to make every church's ears perk up and say, that should be our value too. That should be us, just like it was them. Here's the bottom line. Here's what I'm going to say today. Throughout this passage, we want ITC, Indian Trail Church, we want Indian Trail Church to be a base camp for gospel pioneers. We want ITC to be a base camp for gospel pioneers. Now, that statement is strategic. I'm going to walk you through it in this text. This text provides the soil out of which that statement grows. Look at verse 14 and 15. Paul says to this church, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Let me start with a bit of historical context, I guess. That pe- people debate this when Paul says that in the beginning of the gospel, some people say, well, that's when the gospel was first starting to be preached. But the reality is that Paul had been preaching the gospel way before he was in this town of Philippi. So, so that can't be it. Some people say, and I agree with this, that, that what Paul is doing is he's looking at this from the perspective of the Philippian church. He's saying, from the beginning of the gospel, from the beginning of the time that you received the gospel, that, that, that you trusted in Christ and that you made this your aim in life right along with me, from the beginning of that, you took responsibility for this message. In other words, you didn't see yourselves as reservoirs of God's grace in the gospel. This is so wonderful. Look at us, we've been forgiven. Look at us, we've been adopted. Look at us, we've been reconciled to God and made his children. Isn't that wonderful? You see yourself as conduits. Look at what God's done for us. Now we need to turn around and do something for others so that they can have all of those same blessings. That's what this church was doing. From the beginning, they realized this. Let me give you a bit of the story here from the book of Acts. One of the historical books that recounts Paul's journeys through these towns. And here's what we read in Acts 16 and 17. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. Now this is Paul in the town of Philippi where this letter was written to. After being in jail, you remember he converted the jailer after the earthquake. And when he had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So he's with this small little church in Philippi and now they're, they're leaving. 
Chapter 17, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Okay, so Paul leaves this church, this small little fledgling church in Philippi, and he moves on into this next region. It was south, actually. I should have put a, put a map up for you. Macedonia and then this region called Achaia, and that's where Thessalonica and, and Corinth were. And he moves in there, and as he does, that little church that he had planted with a jailer and some women down by the river, now they become a support structure for the apostle Paul. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians. He says, did I, he's writing to the Corinthian church, which is down in that southern region, like I just said. Did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia, it's Philippi. They came from Macedonia, supplied my needs, so I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. So the beginning of the gospel is the beginning of these people owning this message that, that we need to not only accept Christ in this way, but we need to, to glorify Christ by moving out with the gospel so that those who are not saved can meet Jesus, be forgiven, and join us in all of the same things. This is the beginning of the gospel, and this is why we have these different translations in New American Standard says, you yourselves know that at the first preaching of the gospel, or the NIV, maybe closest to how I'm saying it here, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel. The bottom line is this, yes, through their own witness, but also from the beginning, the church at Philippi became something of a base camp for the Apostle Paul himself as he went through the Roman world. And this is vital to understand. The Apostle Paul was heading into unchartered territory. He was heading into the, to the place where his tracks would be fresh tracks with the name of Jesus Christ. He's going into regions where the gospel had not yet been. And shouldn't this, shouldn't this really be on the church in Philippi's heart? Because they themselves were in the, the exact same situation before Acts chapter 16 when Paul receives a vision and God calls him over to this region and to the city of Philippi. They were the exact same way. Living in darkness, living in sin, living in rebellion as the scriptures say that the, the wrath of God was over them in one sense until they came to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so wouldn't it make sense that someone saved like that, a group of people saved like that, through that endeavor, would then turn around and say, no, no, there's other regions, there's other places that this gospel has to break into. Of course we'll stand with you, of course we'll support you, of course we'll become your base camp. Because your coming meant our salvation, and it will mean the same for others. This church grabbed onto its calling to join in bringing this gospel to others. They became 
a base camp for a gospel pioneer. And that, that is our heart. We want this church to mirror that, that we would become a base camp for gospel pioneers. So the question becomes, what in the world does that look like? Let's look at the text again, verse 14. It was kind of you to share my trouble. It was kind of you to share my trouble. In, in the, if you follow the story there in Acts 16 and 17, I told you he set out, and, and as he sets out um, through these towns, there, there is trouble that is brewing for Paul. Some of the towns that he goes to, um, a- after he leaves, there's people who are still so opposed to his mes- message that they send people to go and persecute him in other towns. It's not enough that they kick him out of their own. They're going to go and stir this up for him elsewhere. So it may be that type of trouble that he's saying, you shared my trouble as I was out there being persecuted. But, but it could be a more general trouble. You share in my trouble the trouble that is taking the gospel to these hard places. It is a struggle day in and day out. There is a general strain of ministry when, you, when you're attempting to get into these regions. There, there is opposition from, from many different places. There's oppositions from governments. There's oppositions from the enemy. There, there's, there's oppositions all over the place. And Paul says you shared this trouble. You in some way were partakers with me. Verse 15, and and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. I want you to key in on one word there in verse 15. No church entered into partnership with me. Actually, the, the root of the word there is the same as in verse 14 when it says you share my trouble. Share, partnership, that, that's the same word. No church entered into partnership with me. And actually that sharing idea is a perfect idea. This is what true partnership or, or communion in this mish, mission entails. That these people were jumping in the boat with Paul and in some sense everything that he was doing was an extension of them. To share really is the essence of, of partnership. It means sharing troubles. It means sharing strains, just like Paul was talking about here. It also means sharing responsibility. It means sharing prayer. It means sharing in support both ways. It means sharing in praises as we see God's Spirit go before someone in the preaching of the gospel. This is sharing in the work of the gospel. You see, at its core level, I think partnership means that his mission was their mission. There wasn't, oh, we're so glad that God has called you to this, Paul, and, and we'll watch you, and we'll pray for you, and we'll make comments from time to time. I think they looked at him, and they said, no, 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 we're partners with you. We're right alongside you, and your mission is our mission. Your success is our success. Your failure is our failure. Your opposition is our opposition. And that is very different. I want to stop here, and I'm going to ask you a question, and don't raise your hands. Do you stand in partnership with any gospel pioneers. I didn't ask if the church does. I asked if you do. If you are standing in partnership with people taking the gospel where it has not gone. Further, 
do you stand with them in such a way and to such a degree that you could look at that person or people whom you support and say, your mission is my mission. Your joys in ministry are my joys in ministry. Your struggles are my struggles. Your problems are my problems. Your prayers are my prayers. Your praises are my praises. Your heartbreaks are my heartbreaks. Last night I was looking over this and buzzing through all this and and getting ready for this morning. And I was actually extremely convicted on that because... um, Because I don't think the answer is yes for me. We partner with people here, and, and, and yeah, that's great. And, and even, I mean, one of them is one of my best friends in the world, Evan uh, Burns, who many of you know. And honestly, last night, God was basically saying, yeah, you don't partner like this. The, the way you're challenging people to partner, you don't do very well yourself. How much do I, do I really think that about him? huge challenge. That's a huge burden. And that can be a huge joy. Listen to what the Apostle John says later in 3 John. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, that is, gospel workers who are traveling missionary types, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. That is the name of Christ. Accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. In God's economy, as we stand and, and join in true partnership with people, he looks at us and says, you're workers too. You say, I'm... I'm, I'm never going to do real gospel ministry. I'm never going to do real gospel work. Well, then that's a choice because we're called to this. You're called to partner with people who are on the front lines, bringing the gospel that saved you. Fellow workers for the truth. You partner with people. Be careful here because partnership means that their mission is your mission. Don't amen this without thinking through the implications. What if you really thought that these people we send from our church are an extension of our heart, are an extension of our efforts to reach the world for Christ? Would you view them differently? Would they be a tagline somewhere in a checkbook? Or or would would they be something that that is at the core of your heart as, as you pray, as you think, as you strategize, as you... See, this is different because they're not just people being supported on some wall, in some room. They are our family. They are an extension of our ministry. This would change everything. The beginning of this year, I was went with a group of pastors to China and we went to southwestern China uh, with Evan 
to survey a possible area that, that he was thinking about working and just to be there with him and pray with him and those things. And one of the last days we were there, we, we jumped on a subway, um, went into Beijing, and, and then met this guy up on the street. And uh, he took us onto a bus, and we rode the bus for about 45 minutes outside of town. And uh, we walked along the street, and we came to this office building, I guess, and walked up to the second floor, and we were welcomed into um, the, an underground Bible college, for, for lack of it. It was on the second floor, but, I mean, I, I thought there would be caves and stuff, but it, it was on the second floor. All the blinds were shut. I guess that makes it underground. Anyway, we were welcomed there. We were, we were going to spend the day with the classes there, um, doing some teaching and interacting with the students, and um, on the way there, uh, the guy who runs the school w- was talking with us, and he says, oh my gosh, we need you to talk about something specific. We said, yeah, that's fine, whatever, whatever you need us to do. And he said, let me get this straight. So you're the missionary, you're sent out from the United States, and you're one of the pastors that's helping send him? He said, yeah, what's the big deal about that? This Bible college was comprised of young Chinese Christians who were preparing to be missionaries to the unreached groups of China, which there's 428 still completely unreached, or to the Middle East. And the Chinese have a growing heart for that. Okay? So, so we're walking into to an underground Bible college full of preparing missionaries. They're preparing to go. They're preparing to take the gospel. And he said, you have to talk about your relationship together. I'm like, Our relationship together? What are you talking about? He said, well, th- this is one of the things that these kids need help with to understand what it means to to be sent and to send. They don't understand that relationship very well. In fact, they went on to say that one of the big problems with the missions endeavor in China, and I don't know if you realize that China is sending missionaries. You probably think of it only as, as a mission field. The Chinese are zealous for missions and are growing in that way. But they, they, they came to us and said, one of the huge problems is they don't have the history of what it looks like to be sent and to send. And so what happens is churches will, will, will bless these people and pray for them and send them out with a few bucks in their pocket and, and just plan on never seeing or hearing from them ever again. So they need to hear what it looks like to partner together in, in ministry this way. So we sat with these young people with fire in their eyes, and, and we talked about what it means, what our communication looks like, what our care looks like, and honestly, I felt completely inadequate. We're trying our best, but I don't know that this looks the way it should look yet. A few days later, we heard the very same thing from a, from a leader in in the South, who, who said one of the huge ways that, that Americans can serve the Chinese church is by coaching them in these types of relationships. He, he looked at me and said, you have a long history as a sending nation, and we need to learn that from you. Well, I hope we're the type of church that they can learn I hope we can embody this type of reality that, that, that Paul looks at this church and talks about, that, that we could endeavor to partner in, in real ways, in all of those 
hard ways. And, and what does it look like? It looks like being a base camp for gospel pioneers. That's part of the partnership. Look again at verse 15 and following. You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Verse 18, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Now listen to those statements that are piled up in those verses there. Partnership, giving and receiving. Partnership must mean something about giving and receiving. What does that mean? You sent help for my needs once and again. So there, there's, there's, a, there's an ongoing relationship of meeting needs, giving and receiving. This means partnership. It means I have received full payment more. I'm well supplied. Okay, so this, is, this begins to build a picture for us. What does it mean to truly partner with someone who is taking the gospel to where it needs to go. And this is what I would say. A church in genuine partnership with a gospel pioneer is meeting needs and making sure they're supplied to do what they're called to do as an extension of a local body. So we come here and we say we care to get the gospel to those who need it in this neighborhood, in this city, in this world, and to the unreached. We, we come here and we say that, and so if we partner with people to, to, to do that, this is what it's going to mean. I remember over a decade ago, I was um, still, I wasn't in ministry yet, I was actually an electrician's apprentice, and I was working on these big jobs, and I worked for this one foreman, and, and, and he was probably the best I ever worked for, and one of the reasons was he'd, he'd always walk you through what he was thinking and why, and one of the things that I hope I never for, forget from this guy, he's got hundreds of people working for him, on this huge job, and he said, you know what, my job is this, I need to get people the tools and the information to do what I'm asking them to do. I need to get them the tools and the information to do what I'm asking them to do. Think about that in, in, in these terms. That our goal is, is to say to people who, whom God has called to go to the unreached and to steward the gospel and to break into areas where it has not gone, that our job is to get them what they need so that they can do what God has called them to do. That is a different picture of partnership than writing a check for ten bucks every month. It's caring. It's jumping in. It, it is saying your mission is my mission. And this is why I say I want, we want ITC to be a base camp for gospel pioneers. I use that term without having any mountaineering background at all. Okay? Base camp, my perception, must have caught some Discovery Channel once in my life about Everest, and there's this idea of a base camp, right? So, if you're a mountaineer, you can correct me later. Here's my perception, anyway, of a base camp. It is a place of staging. It is the place from which an expedition sets out. But it's also the place that supplies the expedition. If you need food, if you need water, if you need warmth, you get back to base camp before your next shot out. If you get into trouble when on the climb, you've got a radio, and guess where that radio is heading back to? 
Trouble comes, you, you radio back, and it's their job to watch out for you. It's their job, they know this about themselves. At base camp, it's their job to be the resource for the people who are up on the mountain trying to go where people haven't gone. They understand this. That's their role. They understand that if you get into trouble up on the mountain, they're going to spring into action and do something about it. The base camp is in constant contact with the expedition. They know how it's faring. They know what the expectations are, and they know their role. And here's the thing that you've got to realize. Nobody out on the expedition says, oh my gosh, we're in trouble. We need supplies. Let's radio back to base camp. Oh, that's going to be a burden for them. They're really enjoying the tent. Because they understand, you see, this is, this is the relationship that, that has been designed This is what it's for. This is what it's supposed to do. And so there's no hesitation in using the radio and calling back. There's no hesitation in that base camp supplying what is needed for the expedition. Folks, this is the vision for the church and the mission's task. The bold reality is that most of us will never, will never leave all and go to the unreached in the hopes of bringing the gospel. And listen, that's fine. We're not all called to that. You're not all called to that. Don't think that I'm saying you are. We're not all going to go and do that. But some of us will. And in that day, all of us will be called to be basic. In that day, all of us will be called to partner in real ways. My prayer is is that this is truly only the beginning. We partner with some amazing people here right now who are doing this very thing. Many of you don't even know that we're partnering with these people. And that's, and that's honestly, that is what makes me more sad than anything. So we talk about the greatness of the gospel, and there's, there's a handful of people who are taking it to the ends of the earth, like was said in Acts 1 to the ends of the earth. There's people doing this, and, and some of us don't even know it. As a church, we, we, we partner with them as a, as a church, church, big C, church, official, church, but as a church, as a gathering of people, I fear that we're not. My prayer is that we would would take this up with the people that God has called right now, but, but, but more than that, I pray that we would see over the next decades many people raised up, truly called to go where God has called them to go, to take the gospel where God has called them to take it, among the unreached, to those who have not heard the gospel, who the, for those who will not hear the gospel unless someone goes. And this is going to happen over the next decades, not because we're out there looking for different organizations to support or looking for different people who might be going, but because God is doing a work here in our midst, and, and we are going to see the fruit of that because God is planting in this church a heart for the lost, a love for the gospel, and a love for the glory of God among us. And so get ready. Because it's going to start happening.
And so we need to ask right now and prepare our minds right now, what are we going to do? What are we going to do as a body of believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as a local family of faith, when a 56-year-old woman retires and says in her small group, I think the Lord is calling me to northwestern India. India still has 2,216 unreached people groups. About a third of all the unreached peoples in the world are in India. And what are we going to do when a 56-year-old woman says, I think God's calling me to go. No one else seems to be going. I want to go. And there's this opportunity for me to go, and here's what I'll need to go. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Are we going to look at her and say, that's so great. Let us put you in touch with some churches who can maybe help you out with that. What do we do? What are we going to do when one of those kids in Urch, and by the way, there are some of those right now and next service, don't know if you know this, in Urch who, who are at 7, 8, 9, 10 years old telling their parents, I want to be a missionary. You say, oh my gosh, that's tragic. That means they're going to leave Spokane. What do we do when God perseveres that vision in a nine-year-old's heart and they come to us, not at nine, but now at 19, and they come to, to, to this church and say, God has put in me a passion to take the gospel where it has not been, and I want to go to the mountains of Nepal where there's 348 unreached people groups. He says, I want to plant a flag for the gospel and for the glory of Jesus Christ among those who will otherwise not hear. I want to do that. What do we tell him? Well, you should go to Bible school and see if they connect you with anybody who can help you with that. Don't think it's strange when this begins to happen, ITC. God is on the move in this place. You see, when the gospel moves into a church and God begins to lay hold of a people for the glory of Christ and the salvation of the lost, things begin to happen. They begin to happen here, and we will see this in our neighborhood. We'll see this in our city. We are already seeing it from the people within this body, and it spills over. It doesn't just stop at this city, because then we lift our eyes, and we say, there's people who don't even have an opportunity yet to hear this message. So those moments over the next decades will come. And and in those moments, we want ITC to be a base camp for gospel pioneers that God himself is calling. I don't want to end there. Give me a couple more minutes. Here's why. I don't want to end there because some of you are thinking, here we go again. All this guy cares about is missions. All this guy cares about is us supporting missionaries. That's not all I care about. That's not all Paul cared about. Look at verse 17. After talking about the help that was sent to meet his needs, Paul says this, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. He looks at a church and says, listen, the issue isn't me. God will take care of me. I know how to be in plenty and in want. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That was last week. The issue isn't me. The issue is you. I'm not seeking help for me. I'm seeking something for you in your spiritual lives before the Father who brought the Christ for you. I'm seeking that for you. 
You say, what on earth is he talking about? That I seek something that increases to your credit? That's a, <clears throat> it's a financial type idea, isn't it? The, the fruit that increases to your credit or, or to your account. What in the world is going on? I, I, think, I think it's something like this. I was with some brothers this Friday, and here's what we read. See if this sounds remotely familiar to you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. As if there's there's an economy that isn't still declining. As if there's an account that looks very different and maybe very opposite from your 401k, which continues to do this. As if there's an account that, that, that actually the things you buy, the things you care about, the things you purchase in a spiritual sense will not rust, will not decay, will not go away. So here we go. This guy's always about money. <laughs> you don't know me very well. Listen to what Jesus goes on to say. This is astonishing. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Here's how he ends. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. He didn't say, he didn't say, where your heart is, there your treasure will be. Though maybe that's true. He says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going. So you say, I want more of a heart for the nations. I want more of a heart for the lost. Then start giving to it because all of a sudden, your heart's going to go there too. Amen? Lay up for yourselves treasure somewhere else. Paul looks at a community of faith like this and he says, I want you to give, I want you to partner, I want you to support missions and gospel pioneers, not for them, but for you. That is very different. As if Paul is saying, there is some blessing, I think, temporally and eternally to you spending your money and your time and your talents where it actually counts. I seek the gift, not the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received these gifts you sent. Listen to this. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. That's interesting language. Now Paul's talking about offerings and sacrifices. Well, wait a minute. That's the Old Testament. We don't have to do that anymore, right? Right. There's something that happens in the New Testament. Paul says, no, no, no. All of that has stopped, but, but then he says this. You yourselves, 1 Peter 2, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Priests were in the Old Testament. Yeah, but listen, now there's a holy priesthood. That's you. That's Christians. Why? To offer spiritual sacrifices. Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews talks about offering sacrifices 
of praise. The, the, the book of Romans talks about offering your lives as a living sacrifice, and here giving to the work of the gospel is seen as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice. In other words, it's worship. Worship isn't, you can ask Jonah, he'll be the first one to tell you this, worship isn't primarily music. Worship is a right response to the revelation of God's person and his promises. Worship is giving all that you are to a God who is worthy of infinitely more. And worship is fleshed out in all of these ways. Part of that is laying up treasures in heaven. Don't miss Paul's final statement about this. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, there is no fear here. You can listen to all this and say, yeah, but if I, if I really start to think about partnering with people the way you're talking about, what if, what if this happens? And what if, what if I lose? And what if I can't? Paul looks at this church and he says, listen, I I want the fruit that increases to your account and here's what you have to realize. God will supply your needs. He's saying the same thing that Jesus said. Don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear for the Gentiles? Seek after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Here's where we started. We want ITC to be a base camp for gospel pioneers. That means true partnership with those who are raised up and sent from our midst by God himself. It means sharing trouble. It means giving. It means meeting needs. It means making sure that these people who have taken the message of Christ that saved us, they're taking it to others, means making sure that they're well supplied. And it means worship. For those who count themselves Christians, a kingdom of priests, we want ITC to be a base camp for gospel pioneers. Paul ends the letter this way. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you. And I picture Paul winking here, especially those of Caesar's household. People were getting saved while he was in prison. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray.